It really is a joy to be able to speak this morning and uh, to preach God's Word to you. And just to say also, out of the feedback from Cambodia, uh, just thank you too for your ongoing support in terms of um, the running costs of the church. Thank you for your faithfulness. Um, we've had a really consistent season financially, so I just wanted to say thank you for that as well. And then we really value your partnership as we reach out to this community and also all across the world. So um, we've reached chapter 13 in our journey through Mark, and it's been a, an amazing journey. It's uh, 44 weeks now that we've been looking at this amazing gospel, and um, we've been trying to paint a portrait of Jesus. That's what this series has been called, a portrait of Jesus, to try and understand who He is. And um, it's one of the great questions that Mark tries to answer in the gospel that he writes as just to who Jesus is. And this uh, portion we're going to look at this morning, chapter 13, is a very exciting portion because it's a prophetic a word that uh, Jesus gives to his disciples that forms the basis for the whole chapter. And it's quite, uh, as it's exciting, it's also quite difficult to understand, but I would encourage you not to uh, let that put you off as we look at it, and that in your own devotions you would continue to read and study exactly what it says. And the main theme that I'd just like to pick up this morning on is Jesus' encouragement to us to be on our guard. And that's what I'm really going to look at through this prophecy that Jesus delivers to his disciples. And um, he has this amazing uh, prophetic word that really speaks into two areas. And the first is the destruction of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, which we'll look at in detail today. And then the second main theme is the whole idea of the second coming, that Jesus is coming back again one day, and we'll uh, look at that over the next couple of weeks. But by introduction, I just wanted to say a couple of things uh, before I get into the text. As I looked at this chapter uh, th this week, it really does remind me, um, it's a reminder to us that the rise and fall of earthly empires are, are, are of relative, not such great importance to God. Um, if we look at this, this in context, uh, in historical context, Babylon, Greece, Rome, the Ottoman Empire, uh, British Empire, you can name many empires that have come and gone and fallen uh, over, the, over the centuries. And so the, the success of battles, the, the rise of empires or the fall of empires, or I suggest the electing of prime ministers and presidents, or whether we are in Brexit or out of Brexit, I think in comparison to the progress of the gospel and the final triumph of Jesus as the Prince of Peace, I think God is far more concerned than, with that than He is with any of these other things that are temporal things that happen over the centuries. And I think we would do well to remember that, especially as we contemplate the results of the recent elections in America and how the world is going to be affected by that. So that's the first thing I want to say by way of introduction. And secondly, just to say this, that this prophecy occurs when Jesus is on the Mount of Olives with his disciples. And we will look at that shortly. And it really is a bridge between his public ministry that we've been looking at over the last couple of weeks. And I just want to commend again Michael for his amazing message last week and Ed and John as well as they've been looking at the confrontation that Jesus had with his disciples, with, the, with the, the, the teachers of the law and the rulers of the temple. And it forms the bridge between that and the passion story which is going to come uh, in, the, in, the, in the, the following chapters, which deals with Jesus' betrayal and his condemnation and death. And so the placement of Mark's story here, this prophecy here, is very important because in Jesus' trial, which we'll look at in a couple of weeks' time, 
there are repeated references made by Jesus to the destruction of the temple. And so Mark links that. He links the destruction of, the, of Jerusalem and the temple to the death and betrayal of Jesus. So those are the two little things I'd like to just uh, say to introduce this portion. And now we're going to read together the first, chapter, the first 10 verses of chapter 13, which says this. As he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be one stone left upon the other that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when, these, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all of these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will, be led, and he will, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but is, the end is not yet. Nations will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. It's a really a rich portion again, and um, an amazing, amazing prophecy that Jesus delivers. And uh, I, I don't know if you've ever thought about what the temple must have looked like that Jesus was speaking about. So I'd like to begin today by considering just what the temple and the, was like that the disciples were looking at. And the, you'll see a picture of it now. Um, this was one of the wonders of the ancient world. And uh, it was being restored at Jesus' time by Herod the Great. He started in 20 B.C., and by Jesus' day, 30, 50 years later, it still had not yet been finished fully. So it, was, it had taken 50 years to renovate. And if you know the Old Testament, the, the original temple, the first temple was built by Solomon and was destroyed. And then the second temple was rebuilt. Um, and, and that's the, the temple now that's being renovated by Herod, Herod the Great. And we can read about the, the second temple being built in Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, and you can see it was very beautiful. It was vast. In fact, Josephus, who's the Jewish historian that documents um, the history of the Jewish people, tells us just how big the masonry and the building, the building actually was, um, the marble stones, the size of the marble stones, how big they were. So if you think of our auditorium, it's about 22 meters across. It's about five meters high. And the, these are the, the, um, the superstructure, the foundations were laid in pieces of marble that were 15 meters long, three and a half meters high, and five and a half meters wide, one single block of stone. That is a massive, massive piece of stone, even by today's standards. Uh, and so these were the foundations, these massive blocks of marble. And there was a magnificent entrance to the temple that spanned across the valley. And again, Josephus, Josephus tells us that the bridge uh, the stones that made the bridge were seven and a half meters long, and the, the bridge rose 68 meters above the valley. Uh, it spanned 108 meters across the valley, and it was 15 meters wide, and this is the, the main entrance that led to the royal porch. 
It was, it was in a magnificent, magnificent structure. And Josephus says this about the temple. He says, and you can see on the picture, did you notice the gold on the, on the, um, where the Holy of Holies is? It says, of, uh, uh, Josephus says this, the outward face of the temple in its front wanted nothing that was likely to surprise men's minds or their eyes, for it was covered all with plates of gold of great weight, and at the first rising of the sun, reflected back a fiery splendor that made those who forced themselves to look on it turn their eyes away, just as they would have done to the sun's own rays. So it was designed that when the sun came up in the morning, it reflected on the plates of gold and produced this fiery, fiery reflection that really dazzled people. And so this, it's understandable, this is really what so impressed the disciples. The temple seemed to be the summit of human architecture and achievement, and it seemed so vast and so big that it would stand forever. And then Jesus makes this astonishing statement that not one stone would stand upon the other. And tragically, less than 50 years after he prophesied this, Jerusalem was destroyed. And there was a Jewish revolt that happened uh, by some of the zealots. And so the Romans responded absolutely ruthlessly. They seized Jerusalem. And Josephus tells us that about one million Jews were slaughtered and killed and uh, sent away from Jerusalem. And the emperor at that time was a guy called Vespasian. And he took the spoils of the sacking of Rome. And I don't know if you've ever been to the Colosseum. Do you want to know how the Colosseum was financed? It was financed with the spoils of the temple in Rome. So basically the Romans took the wealth from the sacking of Jerusalem, brought the money back, and Vespasian built the, the Colosseum with the money as a um, gift to the Roman people. And so construction of the Colosseum began in about AD 70, and it finished about AD 72 or 73. And so here Jesus prophesies this incredible thing that is about to happen. And I was thinking about what can we learn from this prophecy in terms of our own lives and how can we apply it to our lives today. And the first thing I want to say is really simply just this, that the glory of the church really doesn't consist of the buildings that we build for our public worship, but in the faith of its members and in the godliness of its members. You see, Jesus wasn't really impressed with this massive structure, this beautiful temple that contained everything that was precious to the Jewish people. With the Holy of Holies, the, the candlestick was there, the, the altar of burnt offerings. These were the things that were most precious to the Jewish people. And yet Jesus was not impressed by the outward form of this magnific magnificent building. And we've seen over the last weeks, and, and Michael and the guys have so wonderfully taught into that, that Jesus wasn't impressed really with the, the teachers of the law and the rulers of the, the temple who knew God's law but didn't put it into practice. And their hearts were full of pride and far from God. And so he tells his disciples repeatedly to be on your guard against the Pharisees. And in the same way, he's continuing now to, 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 to encourage his disciples to continue to be on their guard as they go into the future. And so in the same way that Jesus wasn't impressed with the temple, I'm convinced that he wouldn't be impressed with the most magnificent cathedrals and churches and other places of worship that we honor today as Christians if his word is not preached and his spirit is not honored there. We are all inclined to be a bit more like the disciples than we think, and we're all impressed by outward appearance. And we are all too apt 
to suppose that just because there's a magnificent old building with carved stones or beautiful painted glass, there's fine music, beautifully robed ministers, that that must show some real faith. On the other hand, we can also be impressed by really cool pastors, you know, with tattoos, trendy tattoos, huge auditoriums, state-of-the-art stages, latest lighting rig, and magnificent worship bands that play faultless, faultless worship music. Surely, we say, this must show authentic faith in a contemporary context. Well, to both of those scenarios, I would answer simply and say, it may, and yet it may not. It may be that it does show true faith, and it may be that it shows no true faith at all. What Jesus really is saying is that the form of things and the show of things appeals primarily to our senses, and that's, there might in that be nothing to challenge our conscience or cure our heart or point us to the living Christ. And so it may prove that over a period of time Christ is not preached, the Word of God is not expounded, that people remain dead in their trespass, dead in their sin, and dead in their life towards Christ. And so I have no doubt that God has no, no, sees no beauty in buildings like that, whether they are ancient cathedrals or the newest theaters with the, the best that money can buy, the greatest auditoriums that we can build today. There is no beauty in them if God's Word is not preached and His Spirit is not honored there. And I'm sure that the caves and the catacombs in which the early Christians lived and worshipped were much more beautiful to God than these magnificent temples where he was neither honored or worshipped. But having said that, let's not go to the, the absurd extreme to say that it doesn't matter what kind of building we use to worship God. Uh, there's nothing wrong with making something beautiful. In fact, it's my personal conviction, and you can see in terms of how we've organized this building, that our space, the, the space that we create and the architecture that we, we um, develop does help us to connect with God. And it helps us to enjoy our, wor wor our work, and it deeply enriches our lives in a very fundamental way. And so it matters a great deal what kind of architecture and space we create around us. There's absolutely no gain in having a, a dirty, shabby, disorderly place of worship. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that we must settle in our hearts that no matter how beautiful the building is that we make for our acts of worship, no matter how fancy the auditorium is or how plain the auditorium is, the things that uphold these things must be the preaching of the pure gospel of Jesus and lives that demonstrate that to the world by honoring Him. Without these two things, there's no glory of God, even in the most magnificent building. With those two things, even the most simple building is lovely and beautiful, and that's where we find the presence of God, the presence of Jesus, and the affirmation of His Holy Spirit. That's the first thing Jesus says, be on your guard against. Don't pl place your trust in outward forms of religious build, uh, worship, in grand buildings, and in forms external form, formal things. Don't put your trust there. And the second thing that he says that we do be on our guard with uh, or against is false teaching and false messiahs. And I find this really interesting because Jesus seldom answers a question directly. And here's another example. It says uh, there are four of his disciples, um, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, and they're on the Mount of Olives, and they ask him privately. They say, well, if this 
this thing's going to happen, God. When will these things, when, when, when will these things be, Jesus? Um, and what will be the sign when these things are to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but it's not yet the end. So it's very interesting to me that when they ask a plain question of when and what and how is this going to happen, Jesus answers in an indirect way, and he starts talking about false doctrine. He starts talking about people that are going to lead you astray. And so for me, it's a very interesting way that Jesus answers, and it seems like he's saying to his disciples, well, he wasn't promising them prosperity or immediate success in this world if they were expecting that they were going to be disappointed. And he starts this thing by saying, I want to warn you that there are people who are going to try and lead you astray. And uh, we know from church history that by the end of the fourth century, there were already many her heretical teachings that had come into the church and that had to be refuted by early church leaders. And so here's the warning for us, all of us, as we live in the 21st century, that we are called to guard our own hearts and to watch over the doctrine that we believe that we do not get led astray by what is not orthodox Christian faith. And again, I just want to say, orthodox simply means the way that is straight. An orthodontist is someone that, that makes your teeth straight. The root of the word means that which is straight. It's not out of alignment with what is traditionally being held uh, to be of Christian faith. And so I was thinking about it, and there are five little areas that I think we need to guard in our lives so that we don't start thinking incorrectly about what the Bible teaches. And here, the, the first way that heresy arises in our lives is that we form doctrine to suit ourselves. You know, as uh, human beings, we have a great capacity for wishful thinking. And so one of the quickest ways to arrive at a heresy is to mold our doctrine to suit ourselves. And here's an example I was thinking of as a 21st century believer. So, you know, it's not fashionable anymore to talk about hell or to talk about the justice of God. Um, or, for example, also the second coming. It seemed to have dropped out of people's thinking and preaching. And I, I would say to you this morning, it's because it's uncomfortable for us to think about those things as 21st century people. So I put it quite plainly and say that perhaps these doctrines have fallen away in terms of our, our preaching and thinking because they are uncomfortable for us to think about. And so I'm not trying to affirm those things in their crudest form, but to put it plainly, it doesn't suit us to believe them as 21st century people, so we kind of make our doctrine suit us and our, current, our kind of current situation. So we have to be God that we... Don't do that. Secondly, heresy can arise from overstressing one part of the truth. Uh, for example, it's always wrong to stress just one attribute of God. If you only think of His holiness, you can never experience any intimacy with Him because you think of Him as someone who's far away and removed from the world, and you can't truly ever know Him. At the same time, if we only think of God's justice, we will never be free of the fear of God, and then we'll become fearful and never know Him truly as a loving Father. And on the other hand, if we, if we only think of the love of God, then our relationship with Him can be reduced to an easygoing kind of sentimental, wishy-washy thing that's dependent completely on how we feel and has very little to do with who He is. And so there's this paradox in Christianity. God is love, yet God is just. We are free completely 
in Christ, and yet God is always in control. We are temporal beings. We are creatures of time, and yet, at the same time, we are creatures of eternity. These are the paradoxes that we live with as Christians. Um, I don't know if you know who G.K. Chesterton was. He's a wonderful uh, Christian writer. He died in 1936, somewhere around there. He was an essayist. He was a, a, lay, a lay theologian, and he wrote many great um, books, a couple of hundred books. In fact, um, if you know a t TV series called... Um, Father Brown, it's about a Catholic priest who solves crimes. That was one of his um, uh, books that he wrote. And he said this. He was an Orthodox Christian. He said this. Christian Orthodoxy is like walking along a ridge with a yawning chasm on either side. One step too far to the left or to the right, and disaster will follow. And that's what he's saying. He's, as a Christian, you have to live with these paradoxes. You have to hold them in tension and walk in the way that is straight. And so we need to see our faith in that way, that it's steady and we see things as a whole and don't just allow ourselves to overstress one part of the truth. Thirdly, heresy can arise when we try to produce something that will suit people and be popular and attractive. Uh, this is what we really have to guard against as 21st century Christians. Um, the moment we begin to water down the gospel, the moment we try and remove the pain of sin, the sting of sin, the consequence of sin, we remove the wonder of grace from our salvation. And I want to put it like this. It's not our, jo it's not our job to alter the gospel to suit people. Rather, it's the Holy Spirit's job to alter people to suit the gospel. And that's what we ultimately have to put our, our trust in, that actually it's God who transforms people by the power of Spirit, and our job is to faithfully declare the truth of the gospel without watering down, without trying to make it more appealing so that it will be more popular to people. I've, ha I've heard uh, people, people have said this directly to me, you know, Christians these days are on the wrong side of history. You need to change so you can get on the right side of history. Well, I would just respond and say that Christians have always been on the wrong side of history. They've always been out of alignment with what cultures want. It's because we're living for an eternal king and an eternal kingdom. So we have to be careful about that, that we don't try and produce something that suits people. And in our, in our attention to do that, we, in our attempt to do that, we water down the gospel. Fourthly, heresy arises by... Divorcing yourself from Christian fellowship in the church. Now, Paul encourages us and says, it's together we find the mind of Christ. Uh, anyone who thinks alone and thinks by themselves is in grand danger, a gra a grave danger of thinking astray. Uh, there's, there's such a thing as good tradition, and the church has always been called to guard the truth that God has given us. And so I want to say this. If your thinking separates you from the people of God... If you, if you are sitting at home there watching this and you're not part of a local church, I want to say to you the chances of you starting to think in a wrong way are particularly high. There, there's, if we separate ourselves from the fellowship of others, we are going to go wrong in our thinking. And ultimately, there's something wrong with our thinking if we're not part of a local church community. Fifthly, uh, heresy comes from the attempt to try and understand everything perfectly. This is another one of the great paradoxes. Um, we're called to love God with our minds and all of our hearts and all of our souls and all of our minds. But 
because we are finite and God is infinite, we can never really fully understand God completely. And if we could, we would be God. And obviously we're not. And so any faith that tries to neatly box things and um, states things in a series of logical prepossessions and tries to prove everything by logical steps is like a math problem, is a contradiction in terms. Um, to, to quote Chesterton again, he says this, it's only the fool who tries to get the heavens inside of his head and not unnaturally his head bursts. <laughs> the wise man is content to get his head inside the heavens. He's making this very same point. And so as we seek to understand God and understand him intellectually, we must always remember that there is a space, there must be space for the ultimate mystery before which we can only worship and we can only wonder and we can only adore. That's what it means to be a Christian. I love Tertullian. He's one of the early church fathers. He was born in modern-day Tunisia in a place called Carthage in the second century. And he, in trying to understand this, he put it like this, I believe because it is impossible. There's a sense of wonder and mystery that we have to live with. We're never going to understand everything completely and perfectly. So to conclude then and to try and draw this all together, as Jesus brings this prophetic word, he encourages um, his disciples to be on their guard and that to be, be on their guard about two, spe two specific things, not to put their trust in grand buildings or the outward form of religion like the temple. And the disciples had every right to uh, be proud of this great temple built by Herod. And in the same way, we too must be vigilant in our own lives, that we don't put our trust in great cathedrals or grand auditoriums or slick worship, great stage settings. Our trust simply must remain in the preaching of the gospel and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And in response to the second question of the when and the how these things would happen, Jesus doesn't really answer them directly because they really Answer, they're asking the wrong question. The right question should have been, how should we live in the light of this prophecy? And that really is what I want to land on as we finish. Whatever prophetic words God brings, whatever he tells us about what's going to happen, the real response should be, how should we live in the light of this? Be on your guard, Jesus says in verse 9. Be on your guard, because they will deliver you over to councils. You will be beaten in synagogues, and you'll stand before governors and kingdoms for my sake to bear witness. But the gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations. This is how we live, my friends, as we go forward. There will be wars. There will be rumors of wars. There will be international strife. There will be physical disaster. Presidents will come. Presidents will go. Brexit will be in, Brexit will be out. Believers will be accused, condemned, punished. Families will betray one another. Jesus said, when you see all of these things happening, don't be surprised. These are just birth pains. It's not even the end. It's just the beginning of the birth pains signaling that the end is coming. And he says in the midst of all of that, no matter what you do, be faithful to hold on to what is true. Whatever the consequences are, faithfully proclaim the gospel. And that includes being true to le uh, true leaders and teachers and speaking the truth wherever you can, even if you are threatened in doing so. And he says, ultimately, this must happen so that all nations, and here the word literally means Gentiles, all the Gentiles must hear the good news, and that's what we keep on doing. We faithfully proclaim and preach it fairly, knowing that some will receive it, 
and some won't. And that's how we keep God. That's how we live until He returns again. So my encouragement to you this morning is don't be distracted. Let's keep the main thing the main thing. The main thing is to preach the good news of Jesus, to trust Him, to not be put off with things that are happening around us. He said these things are all going to happen, and you and I are faithfully to hold to the gospel, to preach the gospel, and to put our trust in the power of the gospel to transform people. That's ultimately where our confidence lies. So we're going to finish our time uh, together with another song, and Zach is going to lead us. But I'm just going to pray and ask God to seal these things in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Uh, thank you for tuning in. Thank you for being with us this morning. But let's uh, finish our time together just uh, honoring Him and saying that He is ultimately the one that we love above all things. Let, let me pray. Father, I want to thank you for your presence. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your favor. I thank you for your word that is so rich. And I, I just pray, Lord, that um, you would seal these things in our hearts, that ultimately our confidence would be in the right place. Our confidence would be in you, not in outward things that we see or outward forms of worship, but ultimately our trust would be completely in you and what you can do by the power of your Holy Spirit. And so I pray, Lord, as we sing about your greatness now, how great you are, I pray that you would seal these things in, in, in our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.